Life's too short for crap marketing. The Got Marketing Podcast is for marketers, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want marketing that's fun, accessible, and meaningful. Join me, Mia Feilman, for inspired chats with my favorite marketing insiders about marketing that works, campaigns that inspire, and the fads, fakery, and false profits to avoid. Strategy is scary, but it doesn't have to be. I have frequently said that I am no fan of the 50-page strategy doc with the pretty charts and the graphs that sits in a drawer. Strategy can be elegantly simple. A few years ago, I came across a strategist on Instagram who I now quote all the time. In fact, my go-to definition for strategy is his. He says, strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. His name is Mark Pollard, and he joins me today. Mark is a strategic trainer and the author of Strategy Is Your Words. Welcome to Got Marketing. Thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure, I have to say. I woke up at 5.15 a.m. just for this, so I'm very, very excited. Uh, thank you. Yeah, the, uh, the New York to Australia time zone or time zones are not generous, not kind. No, not at all. It's like 17 hours or something crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. Can you start us off with a little bit of background? So you are ex-agency, you've also been dabbling in some hip-hop. Can you take us through that, please? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I started in agencies around the age of 20. I was working basically exclusively on digital projects, so doing user experience and information architecture for some pretty complex website builds, online training platform for Audi, a, a bank website for Rabobank. And then in my late 20s, I joined uh, Leo Burnett in Sydney, where there was a guy that a lot of Australians would know. His name's Todd Sampson. He's uh, on the Gruen Transfer. I think he's got multiple TV shows now. Or he's had multiple TV shows since I left Australia. And uh, he sort of ran this experiment. And the experiment was, could you take someone who'd grown up publishing a music magazine, doing radio, making websites, and convert them into a, a strategist, an advertising strategist or an account planner. So at Leo Burnett, I had 50% of my time allocated towards digital projects and 50% of my time allocated towards brand or advertising projects for companies like Canon and Amstel, etc. Uh, and through all, of, all that time, mostly, I, I was continuing to write. I've always written. Uh, and so moved to New York about 12 years ago in my early to mid-30s didn't really click with the agency culture or the corporate culture here. A little conservative, slow, self-important, very talkative, not always a lot of work to show. And just I was like, I can't do this. I'm feeling repressed in my personal life, repressed in my professional life. I was lucky to have good titles, visas, you know, salaries, etc. But I just wasn't happy. And so I ended up setting up a company which eventually morphed into Sweathead. And that's a place where I, I trained thousands of people in a year, do talks all over the world, publish this little book through the pandemic, Strategy Is Your Words. And uh, yeah, that's that's my life, my adult life. Oh, amazing. So who are your customers typically? Who enrolls in your strategic training? People who work in advertising and marketing. It's all the different kinds of agencies. It could be someone who's worked in PR, but they just want some, I guess, more foundational training. So a lot, a lot of people kind of do strategy in the industry, but don't feel that they've been trained and might not be working with people who can train them. Uh, in the UK, you often hear this phrase, uh, I'm not 
or someone isn't a classically trained planner. I've heard that phrase a little bit in the US as well. I don't know what that means, but I know that that's a problem that that I help solve, which is give people a way of working, definitions of words and uh, frameworks and techniques that they can use in very practical ways as well. So that's typically who it is, although there are people who are just interested in critical thinking and creativity who would also follow along or maybe do a course or read my book as well. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I fell into this or I, I don't have formal qualifications. I'm not a classically trained marketer. And that comes with a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. And I think, and I think you think, because I've saved this post on your Instagram, that you can't outsource your confidence. You have to in-house your confidence. And so building those skills by doing some sort of strategic training from someone like you is going to help you grow that confidence. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be super weird if you quote me to me. Because <laughs> cause when, when, you, when you do stuff like podcasts or when you write, publish online, publish in books, you have to spend a lot of time with yourself and you're in your head a lot, right? And so, and then you put these things into the world and you hope that they find an audience and when they do, that's amazing. But also when that audience talks to you about the stuff or quotes things, it's quite surreal. It's a little out of body, but I mean, that's, that's the goal. So thank you, but it's also going to be weird if you keep doing that. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Make it weird. <laughs> I'm joking. Don't, don't. Do whatever you want. I'm not your boss. <laughs> Hey, hey, mate, this is my show. I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yes, mate. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the confidence thing, whenever I've struggled in, in the industry or running my own business, like you, you just have to often take more responsibility, I, I feel. You could get rid of responsibility. You could sit on your hands. You could take a year sabbatical. You could do yoga. You can meditate. They're all fine uh, as coping mechanisms or even as strategies, really. But I've, I've just found that if I'm frustrated, usually it helps to take more responsibility if you can. So if you're in an agency that's not winning pitches, maybe you should stick your hand up to run a few of the pitches, but to, to really own it in, in, in business, if things aren't quite clicking, you, you can't literally can't go backwards and you can't not do anything. You have to launch the next thing. And over time, that becomes... It becomes easier. It's not that it becomes easy, but it becomes easier. And the fear and the anxiety, all that stuff's always there. But you can compartmentalize it a little bit better because you know you've got to write the next book, you've got to launch the next course, you've got to put on an event. You, you, you have to. So there's a certain force, uh, momentum, velocity that is available to you as soon as you start to take more responsibility for the things that frustrate you. It's not easy, but uh, that's where I'm at these days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's old as time, but this idea that knowledge is power is that you can't, as you said, you can't sit on your hands. So what are you going to do? For me, I draw a lot of confidence from upskilling and education. I always have, but that might be different for other people. They might hmm. not feel the same level of confidence when it comes to upskilling and it might be something else that works for them. But I mean, it can't hurt to give this a crack, right? Totally. All right, so let's go back to what is strategy and that definition of strategy is an informed opinion about how to win. Can you unpack that for me, please? Yeah, I, one thing that I, I want to point out before I talk about that is how often we use jargon possibly for years and with each other, at each other, around each other, under each other, without necessarily understanding what we're trying to say, without understanding a shared def definition. And so a lot of the work that I've done over the years is like, 
We use this word all the time. What does it even mean? Strategy, idea, creativity. It's, what do these words actually mean? And sometimes I borrow definitions and sometimes I write them and it's not that they're necessarily profound and amazing and super useful, but they're useful to me. And that's really mm. how I operate. So strategy as an informed opinion about how to win, the two key bits of that are really the inf informed opinion. So you need information, but information without an opinion is not useful. And opinion without information is also not useful. It's those two things coming together. And even though it's a little bit jargony, why, why I like it is because it admits that you're basically guessing the future. But also, your guess needs to have a spine. It needs to have an opinion. It needs to have an argument. Uh, I see a lot of strategy documents. I'm like, what, what's your point? What's your argument? And start there. Start with your argument and only tell me what your argument is. I don't need your, your school report. You know, uh, Obviously, the winning part is important, but that doesn't have to be win at all costs. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. But, but typically, strategy is about improving your situation. Yeah, improving your odds. And that's exactly what I like about that definition is that a lot of people expect strategy to be an exact science. You know, if I have a marketing strategy and if I pay five, ten, twenty thousand dollars to a strategist, I'm going to get a strategy that will win. And that is not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination. And then that beautiful modifier before opinion informed not all opinions are created equal. So who are you going to to get your strategy? Are you going to Instagram with someone that has 100,000 followers and that is a celebrity entrepreneur? Or are you going to somebody who does this work and has for 20 years and understands what makes a meaningful and compelling strategy? I agree. I agree. I don't know which one of those I am, by the way, but I agree. <laughs> I agree. You are the and, latter. And, and yeah, I don't even I don't know these days, but but also you know you see a lot of banter online, and and I think even within the agency world for the past, especially the past decade, I started to hear some of this discussion a little bit before then. But I feel like a lot of the agency world, especially over the past decade, has been a little bit in the shadow of, a little bit in awe of, a little bit embarrassed by management consultants. Mm. You know, they do they do the strategy. For those of you who are interested in that world, there's this really good book called The Lords of Strategy. It's a journalist that charts the history of management consultancies. I got to tell you, they just made stuff up. Really? You know, they'd, they'd come up with like a, a, a two by two framework that they could sell for 10 years. And as soon as it stopped selling, they'd make up another thing and go sell it. Obviously, they bring a lot of information and skills and expertise to, to the fore. But, you know, they're still guessing the future. They don't know. Mm. No one knows, especially post COVID. Like we are. We are making informed opinions about how to position ourselves for success. Yeah. And oh my gosh, how exhausting is it? Every every couple of months, I'm like, what's going to happen this quarter? What do we, you know, because we've been launching a lot of courses and I'm trying to write another book and very, and I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen next month? What's going to happen next year? It's, uh, it's a privilege to do this, but it's not without its stresses in, in this kind of environment. Absolutely. I've certainly found I'm an online course creator as well that the appetite for online courses has certainly dried up since the pandemic. Yep. Have you experienced the same thing? Yeah, well, you, you noticed a lot of creators in 2020 started to launch online courses, but you, you can't do that unless it's unless you're really successful, really rich, and you've got a team doing it for you, or it has to be kind of part of your life. Mm. It has to be really central to your, to your life. And a lot of that started to drop off about 12 months ago. I think 12 to 24 months ago, there was this big ed tech crash in India. So they had all these massive companies that kind of just crashed. 
And then this year, subscriptions uh, are drying up a little bit. I do stuff with Skillshare. I also have my own platform. But even Skillshare is sending out emails about you know subscription fatigue and online course fatigue and, and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, a, a lot of us are feeling the effects of it. But that's why it helps to have a, fly, a flywheel for your IP. You know? So my book is, has a course. I do talks. I've been in, in, I don't know, 10 countries talking and teaching thousands of people this year. Couldn't do that in 2020. Everything disappeared. So that's that's why for the sort of content or educational entrepreneur, it, it helps to have different revenue streams because it can, it will complicate your life. It could stress you, make your website more complicated, uh, cause a lot of pain. Uh, websites, oh my god, especially WordPress. But multiple revenue streams are definitely useful. Yeah, keep you going. I think this is such an important message to the listener. We've already gone off track, but that's okay. We'll we'll go back. Uh, in terms of what it takes to be a successful online course creator in 2023, there is a lot of false narratives around at the moment around how you can just jump straight into that leveraged income space without having cut your teeth as a service provider or as X agency or X corporate, you know, people who have never run businesses before diving in, getting an expensive Kajabi subscription and starting to sell online courses and then finding zero enrollments, like zero, absolutely none. And it is, you know, I look at people like you, even people like me, I've been working in marketing 20 years and yes, I'm a successful online course creator, but it was like sticking Pete needles in my eyes for the first two years. Yeah. Like it was it is so hard. It is the hardest sell I've ever had to sell. And that is really saying something. Yeah, well books and courses to state something utterly obvious and true. Books and courses don't sell themselves, but it can take years to to build up a an energy, an audience, a following, whatever you want to call it, that you can launch stuff too. You can't yeah. come out of nowhere unless you happen to go viral on TikTok like the that lady who was teaching Excel uh, techniques on TikTok, she blew up and was really mm. successful, I think, using the Thinkific platform. But uh, it's, it's very hard. You, you need years, potentially, of, of a network, of an email newsletter, all of these things. So I agree. Yeah, yeah. You need the audience. Otherwise, the audience would always prefer to work with someone one-on-one or to outsource it fully. Don't tell me how to do it. Just, just do it for me. The course requires investment from them. They actually need to do the work. And so that is a much harder sell, which is why you need the ready-made platform for them to buy from. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's go back. How can someone approach strategy in a way that is not you know, make, going to make their head fly off their shoulders? What is your way of doing strategy simply but also effectively? Yeah, and then let's situate the word strategy in the context of advertising, although the way I like to work and the, the kind of ideas that I like to come up with, they could be at the heart of a business strategy as, as well. But just for the sake of ease, let's, let's sort of situate it within advertising. Or you could situate it within marketing, but definitely within advertising. So I, I came up with this little framework called The, called the Four Points. Uh, wrote a book about it, teach it all the time. Uh, and what that's really about is four sentences on a page. Now, there are lots of other frameworks. I use them, I think about them, but I kind of like the four points because it starts by focusing on the problem that we need to solve. There are lots of types of problems in the world and in this kind of work. When I'm using that word, I define it as essentially a a barrier or the barrier or the obstacle that's in the way of someone uh, doing something or buying something. Then uh, we have an insight. One of the most 
overused, misused words. Everyone fights about this word online all the time. It's quite funny. A lot of people don't. Uh, a lot of people believe that you don't need an insight to make effective advertising, and that can be true. It can be true. I, I like them, um, and so for me, an, an insight in the four points framework is an unspoken human truth that sheds new light on the problem. I want to see the insight open up the problem. It's a little bit of an abstract thought, but uh, it's sort of the insight I use them to reframe to pierce open the problem, also abstract. And then we have the advantage, which is you know what makes your brand unique and motivating in people's minds, although there's also a debate about, about that uh, because what that is talking about is differentiation and obviously there's pretty well known research in, uh, out of Australia from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute that uh, goes back and forth between Australia and the UK about how differentiation doesn't matter as much as distinctiveness. So again, that's one of these things that people fight about online, only in Australia and in the UK, really. <laughs> and then you've got strategy. So you've got problem inside advantage and strategy, which is the way I define it is uh, a new way of seeing your brand based on the insight and the advantage clashing together. So lots of different ways to, to come up with creative briefs and to write advertising strategy. But uh, I like the four points. And when I was using other frameworks like the four Cs, for example, having at Leo Burnett and Sydney bought into the idea that our work is supposed to solve problems, adding things like problems to the four Cs, it just started to feel a little cumbersome. You sort of had this framework sprawling and I was like, no, let's just simplify it and see if it works. And I find it useful in life. Uh, I find it useful for advertising and brands. Yeah, I find it extremely useful. Ever since I've, I saw it, I tried using it and I found it really, really useful. And then I introduced it to our students in Campaign Classroom and they are not strategists and don't necessarily come from a marketing background. So they have gotten stuck on the buckets. What goes where? You know, oh, yeah. that's the problem versus the insight or that's actually the strategy versus the advantage. So I would, I'd love if you could take us through the four points again and help to really clarify what needs to go where and is it so important that the right thing goes Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I've yeah. just finished a four a four week accelerator, so I've marked all this work and you know had sixty students take it, and I'm pretty familiar with where people get stuck. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is the, the problem feels like an insight, and yeah. I've published stuff online, and people will correct me and how I use my own framework, which I always <laughs> find really really fun. Oh, isn't the so, internet a beautiful place, Mark? Oh my God. You know, I, I don't, I don't get it too bad, to be honest. Relatively speaking, uh, I know a lot of people get it worse, but every now and then, it's, it's just funny. You gonna correct me and how I use my own framework? I invented my own game, and I'm playing it. Like what? Uh, problems, main issues there. They feel like criticism. They feel negative, so people tend to avoid them. That's one point. The second point is they will feel insightful because what I'm looking for is something that I haven't heard before that seems revealing. So the problem will feel like an insight, but it's not an insight because of how I define the word problem. The problem in the framework is the reason that someone's not buying something. It's the obstacle or the barrier. So that's relatively straightforward. Uh, insights about people, the main issue, two main issues with the insight that I often see, one is just not that interesting. Uh, you know, push a little bit deeper, People spend so much time trying to sound like a strategist, writing with heightened intellectual language rather than writing how, cl closer to how they speak. So that's that's one issue. A second issue is that thematically, there might be something chunky and provocative in the problem, and all of a sudden, with the insight, the insight seems completely disconnected. Mm. 
there's a different set of language, different you know theme coming through. So that's where things start to fall apart. Or third problem with the insight is that people might talk about the company or the brand in the insight, which is not how I use it. You can do whatever you want. Then with the advantage, relatively straightforward there. I think the main issue with the advantage, which is defining what's unique and motivating about the brand, is that maybe the theme disappears again. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to bring a theme through these these frameworks, which is usually a word or two, or a word or two plus the opposite words or two. And so there, there might not be a lateral leap in the advantage. And I, I like to see a little lateral leap or an idea in each sentence. And then strategy, I usually write it in the format of show that X is Y. And I want to see the theme coming through. I want the strategy statement to feel like a crescendo. We're using the word strategy in slightly different ways every every time that we're referring to it right now. But uh, in, it, really, what I'm focusing on there is a strategy statement. And I want it to have an idea, uh, some kind of energy, provocative. I want to feel like, ooh, I haven't heard it that way before. I haven't seen it uh, like that before. And then the, the final thing I'll say is it doesn't really matter where you start with a framework. I'll typically dig into the problem, but Sometimes, you know, the problem could be the advantage, which could be the strategy. You know, there's a pretty nice campaign out of Iceland for Iceland tourism, where the problem that they're obviously trying to solve is there's nothing to do in Iceland. So why would I go there? That's the problem. But that could also be an advantage. There's nothing to do here. And that led to this campaign of people going to Iceland. Well, the campaign shows people in Iceland shouting, getting their stress out because of the pandemic, just being super stressed. Okay, so... It's not really about a dot-to-dot situation. Sometimes the problem is a word or two away from the strategy. Sometimes you might start with the advantage. It's, it's, they're just prompts. You know, you still got to do the critical thinking rather than treating it like it's a, a form to fill in. Absolutely. That is fantastic. That was so helpful. What we found, and I don't know if this is helpful to you with our students, is that the insight was a statistic rather than an insight yeah. and there is a difference. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, that's, that's okay. You know, there's, there's an example. I'll get the statistic wrong, but mm. I, like this, I like this example. So in research about altruism and charitable giving, so giving money to charities, donations, there is a piece of research. I, I don't know if this has been repeated, whether it holds up, uh, still holds up, but there was a, a, I don't know, a piece of research that said a percentage of couples who argue about how much to donate tend to donate more. Mm. Now, that's pretty insightful, and I think it's an insight, But then, and it's got a statistic in it, but then you might ask, well, why is that the case? And it turns out that it's because they both want to invest, and then one, one wants to conquer the other person. They want to feel better about themselves, so that person will tend to donate more. But the statistic there is insightful. Mm. But saying, saying 55% of people buy insurance for peace of mind, that's not insightful. Exactly. That's because you went one step down into the human truth, right? What does the statistic tell us about humans and our flaws that is the insight? And it was that second part, which was that the couples that want to one-up each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're competing and one wants to feel victorious. <laughs> yeah. No, that doesn't sound at all familiar. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, and, that, that, and that just, that one sentence or that one thought could lead to a campaign where you, you try to get couples to argue about how much to donate, you know? So again, where that would fit on the four points almost doesn't matter. Mm. Is it useful? Could you use it? Yeah. Absolutely. Marketing Circle is the Campaign Del Mar experience reimagined. 
When you join the ecosystem, you receive access to all Campaign Del Mar's programs, including the beloved Campaign Classroom, our proprietary Campaign Builder tool, one-on-one sessions with me and my team, and a tight-knit community. Join others in the same boat as you, wearing all the hats and juggling all the balls. Intentionally designed for entrepreneurs and marketers who want to build coveted brands, our strategic and creative marketing ecosystem is your ticket to future-proofing your brand. Marketing Circle is the antidote to marketing stormy seas. Learn more at campaigndelmar.com. Okay, and then what else I see, I loved what you said about how it's just not interesting. I specifically see that when it comes to the advantage. It's not unique and it's not motivating. It's like, yeah, I help people live their best lives. That's that's nice. I, you could be anybody. That's Yeah, that is not a form of differentiation or distinctiveness, right? Well, correct. I mean, distinct. it could lead to something that's distinctive. Right, because distinctiveness is largely about having distinctive brand assets, so characters, songs, maybe smells, colors, mnemonic devices, memory devices, uh, and bringing them to life in really creative ways, ways that get our attention and then keep our attention. So th- that could lead to something distinctive, but it's not interesting. And that, that sort of writing is really, really common. It's like this empowerment genre of writing. As soon as someone opens up a strategy document, they think they have to sound like that, best version of me, best life, all this sort of stuff. I've seen that hundreds of times. It's just not interesting. Mm. I think it skips over. We have, we've been told, especially in small business, that you need to focus on the transformation in your messaging, in your words. And instead of telling people what the benefit is and telling people what it is, just tell them how it solves a problem for them. But then as a result, we have become very non-conformist in our messaging and we're, we're using things like live your best life and, you know, increase your profits and these sort of very broad sweeping platitudes as opposed to, yes, but what is on the box? What's on the label? What exactly, how are you doing that? And I'm saying that commonly among small business marketing messaging. Yeah, it's it's copycat stuff, and a lot of that empowerment language is what people use. It it frustrates me, you know. I, for example, I see people on television saying, you know, we just got launched some kind of startup, and we want to empower women. And I'm like, okay, well, how? Mm. That's what's interesting. Not that you want to empower women, because that kind of language and, and that genre of writing can actually, to me at least, seem kind of patronizing to the audience. You know, who are you to empower a group of people? <laughs> like. You know, a little bit of a God complex there, but also it's just not specific. It's not specific. Yeah, that's my beef with it for sure. Totally. Okay. And then problem is the obstacle. Insights are about people. Needs to be interesting. Advantage has to be something that's unique. And then the strategy should have an idea. So what we see is that, and this is, you know, um, because we work with people who are not strategists, they will often use a channel or a tactic as the strategy. Yeah. 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 But what you're saying is strategy is your words, right? It is the actual words that you write. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So what's an idea? An idea is at least two topics coming together, topic A, topic B, and you want to see that clearly written in a strategy statement because that will organize everything to come. Mm. So for example, something that I often 
use is for the New York Knicks, which is a New York basketball team, which has not done that well. They're doing okay now, but they weren't doing very well for a very, very long time. And the strategy statement that I wrote in a joking way is we'll show that the New York Knicks, topic A, New York Knicks, topic A, are the best anger management in town. Best is a weak word, but whatever, I kept it in. So you've got topic A, New York Knicks, topic B, anger management. And what that is trying to say is, yeah, we're probably not going to win, but you can come yell your lungs out and it'll feel a little bit like anger therapy, I guess, right? Then you would work out the tactics potentially, or you would also probably look for a campaign idea. Uh, and then the tactics. But at least you've got an, an idea in the strategy. And I'm not talking about a campaign idea in the strategy. I'm talking about idea in a, a secular way, two topics coming together to create new meaning, new value that will organize everything to come. As opposed to a, a lot of what I see is a strategy could be a list of principles, you know, be shareable, be memorable, or it's a list of tactics and deliverables. You know, we're going to make three, our strategy is to make three videos and to set up on Amazon, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, nah, they're the, they're the tactics are the activities that will bring your strategy to life, but what's the thing in the middle that's holding it all together? What are you going to say in the videos, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 there's that too. Yeah, what, the, what are the videos about? Yeah, if you had to describe the video, what would? how would you describe the video before you get to you actually make the video? What is the video? Yeah. What is it? Yeah, what's the main message? What's the main idea? Yeah. For sure. Well, I think this tool is absolutely brilliant and I did it exactly how you suggested well, just suggested. I actually started with campaigns that I liked and then I went back and tried to reverse engineer the four points to see if I could see how those strategists got to the campaign idea that they did. So I did it for Duolingo and yeah, it worked brilliantly. So I'm super keen on hearing... Post them online, tag me. Yeah, I will, I will. But I'm also super keen on... Are we going through them? What's that, sorry? Are we going through them? If you want, yeah. Actually, do you know what I would love to do is share one that Lauren Pickering did. So she is an absolutely brilliant marketer. We work together at L'Oreal and she she used the four points on Villainous, which is in Lithuania for the tourism body. And she came up with the problem. Mm -hmm. Lithuania is a small and forgotten European country. Nobody knows of its capital Villainous. Like if, if you were to ask somebody, what's the, where is Villainous? No one would have any idea. So the insight that she came up with was that visiting somewhere not others haven't gives you bragging rights and social credibility. And then the advantage that Lithuania has is that they have obscurity despite 700 years of history. And so then the strategy that she came up with was make your way to villainous before it becomes a not-so-hidden gem. Yeah, that, that, rings, that rings true. It's, it's funny because I've literally been traveling a little bit. Well, I've, I've done two talks in two different places with a guy who's Peruvian, lives in Lithuania, and often shares work from Vilnius, including the G-Spot campaign, which is very famous, where he, some of his students came up with this idea to try to sell Lithuania as the G-Spot mm -hmm. of Europe. And apparently this idea was sitting in their portfolio for a while. Someone found it, put it online, or tweeted it or something, and then it went a little bit viral and, uh, and was effective. But yeah, I, I, that, that makes sense. I think that whole holds... Well, yeah, not-so-hidden gem before it becomes a not-so-hidden gem. That makes sense. You're talking about obscurity, bragging rights, yeah. 
thematically that's all connected, mm. you know, get there before it becomes famous, mm. before there are lines, all that sort of stuff, yeah. I was watching a video about Vilnius on the, on, on the weekend. It's, it's beautiful. I want to go. Yeah, and I think that it really speaks to the inside about how people want to be that person that discovers a place, you know. Oh, you went to Phuket? Oh, that's nice, you know. <laughs> so did everyone. Like it just, it, it's almost very basic bitch now to be like, yeah, I went to Phuket, yeah. yeah. Whereas if you're like, oh, I went to Aitutaki, you're just like, oh, where's that? Oh, well, that's in the Cook Islands. It's like, oh, amazing. What was that like? Oh, it was incredible. You have to go. It is just, it's such a hidden gem, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, strategy versus creativity. On your LinkedIn, you've got a banner that says strategy work is creative work. What do you mean? Well, I I go back through the definitions of this. The reason that I I promote that thought a little bit, and it's not not original to me necessarily, but I just remember working in advertising, feeling like I was creative. You know, I'm publishing magazines, putting on music events, releasing music. I'm doing all this stuff. I feel creative, but there's a creative department. So who am I to feel creative? And that's something that a lot of people in marketing and, and in, in agencies experience. The, the way that I get there is really by defining the words. So what is creativity? To me, creativity is the act of having ideas and putting them into the world. What are ideas? Ideas are at least two topics coming together to create new meaning. And the strategist does that. They, they conduct research, they find out things, they look for patterns, and they try to create new meaning. Now, what I'm not saying is that the strategist's job is to do the job of a creative department. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am pointing people to is really the ideas of good nonfiction writing. You know, you can pick up a great nonfiction book, read a nonfiction essay, people you follow on TikTok, stand-up comedians, who, who brilliant stand-up comedians, and they'll all land sentences. That's why they get our attention and keep our attention. They'll all land sentences where they're bringing a couple of topics together in a way that gets you to see yourself or the world around you differently. That's really what I'm, I'm trying to get at there. I know a lot of people are like, no, nah, strategists, they're not creative, but we're not talking about it in the same way. I would understand what that person means, the person who would deny that a strategist is creative. But for me, I think that role is more powerful if you acknowledge that they're creative spirits often, not always, but often. But then you also need to let that person know that their job is not to undermine or do the job of the creative team if, if there is a creative team involved. So in my world, having a strategist and having a creative is a massive privilege because usually we are talking about a business owner, predominantly female, who is doing all of those things and 10 more. And so why can't a strategist be creative? I consider myself to be a creative strategist. Yeah. And so to me, that's a tautology. Um, I I remember when I first heard that title, creative strategist, it was probably nearly 20 years ago. And I was like, ooh, (laughs) I wouldn't mind that title. And then over a year or two, I was like, well, if I believe that strategy is creative, then putting the word creative in front of it, I don't know don't know if it really helps, but you know, I struggled with the title account yeah. planner. It's this English title. Like, what the hell's that? But 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 I think I think how you define yourself is totally up, obviously totally up to you. But in the advertising process or in the marketing process, it's just important to allow yourself to switch modes so that the strategy mode is mm-hmm. probably more nonfiction. And then the cam- the campaign mode, if you're the creative strategist coming up with a brand platform or an advertising idea, campaign idea, it's not that that's fiction and not non-fiction, but it's a, it has a different energy to it. And what I find interesting, sometimes I'll have uh, well, creative directors, executive creative directors take my courses, 
they sometimes struggle with that. And what their solution is, is to make the strategy boring so that they can, can come up with a really good idea. Whereas I want them to put energy into the strategy. I want it to be exciting and interesting and to feel creative, but for it to not feel like a, an advertising campaign idea. So I know this uh, sort of in the weeds a little bit, but um, <laughs> yeah, how, you, how you identify is super important. High five to you. To me, it's not about um, making that all strategists are creative. It's that I'm a particular style of strategist who can also do the creative. And that comes out of sheer necessity of being a small business owner. You know, we don't live in agency land where we have a team of people to do it. But I believe as someone who does get paid to come up with campaign ideas for a living, that your campaign ideas are only as good as your strategy. It's only as good as those insights and those frameworks that you may or may not use. Um, And, you know, those uh, audience conversations, getting on the phone to customers to really understand what it is that they want in order to inform that nonfiction creative idea. So that's why I, I am happy with the term creative strategist because I don't write marketing strategies. Mm. I come up with campaign ideas, but I do that from a strategic perspective. Cool. Well, ignore any and all of my posts that no, I mean, I, I <laughs> believe in a marketplace of ideas and I don't need to have people I agree with all the time. I mean, look at Mark Ritson, you know, he is the angriest, most just, you know, like, shade-throwing human, but I do agree with a lot of what he says and I disagree with a lot of what he says and that's and that's okay. That's fine, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, so tell me about the book, Strategy Is Your Words. Why should people read it? What's in it? <laughs> yeah, so split in two. The first half is kind of this absurdist, unhinged look inside the strategist's brain. So, I, you know, I investigate things like the imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon, feeling like a lone wolf, clarity versus confusion. There's, I don't know, 10 or 12 topics today that I investigate. And the second half of the book is basically how I would work using the four points. So a lot of exercises, techniques, frameworks within frameworks and that sort of stuff. And I I think for someone who does this kind of work, the thing that I love to hear the most is when someone says, it's the first time I've seen myself in a book. Uh, I wanted the book to feel like it was inside people's heads, you know, because I'm a little bit older than a lot of the, the, the people that I teach these days. And I've been in a lot of situations, a lot of stressful situations in various countries, various cities. And so I, I feel I can, write, I can write and have written from the front lines of, of experiences that maybe other people have every now and then, but often might feel that they're the only ones having it at the time. And so I think psychologically and philosophically, there's some use to the book. Uh, and then if you'd like to do the work that we're talking about, the second half is pretty practical, less, less weird, uh, pretty practical. But um, I, I love it when, because every now and then I'll get a review or I'll, I'll, I'll see someone talk about it. And uh, the first half of the book, is a, it's a bit strange for some people, uh, especially the sort of more logically hardened, uh, low empathy kind of person. So... Yeah, it's been interesting to see the response to it. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. I talk about it at most conferences. I'm like, all right, start here, read the book, then 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 come back. What about for people who say they can't write? All right, so you're saying that strategy is your words. It's all about the words that you choose. Don't use, you know, point Dexter words and jargon words and words that you think sound cool. Just use plain spoken words that, 
and get and you know use a thesaurus if you need to to get to a great word that really encapsulates what you're trying to say. What if someone says, "But I'm not a writer. Not good with words." I, I think that's a bit of a problem because I know everybody's a little bit different, but writing helps you think. So if if you've sort of given up on given up on the act of writing, then it can seem like you've probably given up on thinking. Therefore, why are we talking? So I, I think it's really, really important. I think having a writing practice is important. Journaling can be important. I don't do it right now. I've had phases of doing it, but it helps you to connect to yourself, first of all. It's like therapy for yourself. You'll find ideas and patterns in your own writing. And then to give people uh, an even more practical way to think of words, there's some research about words and which kind of words are most memorable. Right? And advertising is about getting into the memory. So it would help to understand what kinds of words we get into mm. the memory. I call them pineapple words. The researchers call them mon monogamous words. So monogamous words are words that don't cheat. Words that don't cheat, all that means is they are words that don't have a lot of synonyms. The word pineapple, when I say that, sure, we might use it in funny ways, in slang ways. But generally speaking, if I say the word pineapple, we're seeing the fruit. Now, if I say a word like empowerment or concept or execution, that's, they're just cloudy words. They're up in the sky, they're big, but what's in them? And so, you know, pineapple words, one and two syllable words are, are perfect for this kind of work. That's right. And I think that when we use a word that's really overused, I push my students to come up with a different word just because even though how you write your strategy might not necessarily be the words you end up using in your marketing materials, in your campaigns. And so that's the first thing. If you if you don't think you're a great writer, then exactly to your point, then the best way to do to fix that is to write. But also it's not necessarily that what you write is going to be the finished published product. You might end up engaging a copywriter to write what it's going to look like on your campaigns. But also that those words do sometimes end up as the final product, right? I can imagine in your Sriracha example of the four points that you shared that some of those words probably did end up in the campaign idea because it was so great. Like the, the actual four-point strategy, it was so ready for the campaign idea straight off the back of that, don't you think? Yeah, could be, so that's some student work uh, by Natalie. Yeah, it, it can. I just want to be... I always want to be careful that if, again, if I'm working with a creative team or even if I'm coming up with campaign ideas, which I'll, I'll sometimes do depending on clients, I just don't want to crowd out that part of the process. I want there to be an idea. I want there to be something provocative, exciting in the strategy. But then I, I want people to be like, yep, okay, New York Knicks, anger management, great. I can take that somewhere. Uh, and I still want people to feel that there's a somewhere to go. Now, if you're doing all of that work yourself, then... You know, it might matter less to feel the way I do, but I would, even if I was doing, trying to go through the entire advertising process myself or with a small team, I'd still want to have relatively discrete compartments just to be slightly faithful to, to the processes. I know it. Sure. Did Natalie go on to create a campaign for Sriracha? I'd love to know what the, what the final product looked like. No, no, that was just a hypothetical. So that was from our, our four-week accelerator course, and that was just a hypothetical. I've got new hypotheticals from students from uh, a few weeks ago that I'll publish online soon. Yeah, like, you know, I, I coach and train companies on this kind of stuff. And one of the reasons I kind of left agencies, which, and I've not solved this problem yet, I just found it so hard to get connectivity between strategy and ideas in the creative department. 
was one of the reasons that I was just like, what are we even doing here anymore? Um, it just felt like the discipline around conceptual thinking, one, and then conceptual thinking connected to strategy, which I took for granted in Australia. I just didn't find it as common in the US. You know, it's a different, different culture, a lot of people, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, that's, that was a hypothetical example. I definitely see what you're saying. I've been, I was ex-agency as well, and I've definitely been in creative teams where they just want that idea. That's the idea that they want. And it doesn't matter if there's no strategic foundation to it. Someone came up with a great idea and we found a client we can shoehorn it onto. And so here it is, rock and rolling it for this client, as opposed to, hey, is this strategically sound for this client? Or is this just a great idea? that you just, you want to run with and you've just found a client that's sort of fits. Yeah, that's going to happen. And, you, you know, you don't necessarily want to get in the way of that. But if that's all that's happening for a decade or two, you're going to feel a bit useless. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Mark. Do you have any final parting words of wisdom? I'm sure you do. Well, I mean, one of the things that's been on my mind a lot as I've as I've you know been talking and, and teaching in various countries is is... Don't forget that these tools are, are great to use on yourself and we are our main clients and sometimes we forget that for a couple of decades or until big crises push us to reflect about life. So it's great doing this work and getting paid to do this work, but these tools can be very powerful when you use them on yourself. Absolutely. That is so true. Thank you so much. Thank you for creating the four points. It's fabulous. I definitely have the four-week accelerator on my radar, especially next year on this sabbatical. So you may see my enrollment come in there. I will put in all the links in the show notes, Mark's book, the four-week accelerator and his socials. But thank you once again for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I hope you enjoy that sabbatical. Thank you. You listened right up until the end. So why not hit that subscribe button and keep the good marketing rolling? Podcast reviews are like warm hugs and they're also the best way to support a small business. You can connect with me, Mia Feilman, on Instagram or LinkedIn. And feel free to send me a message. I'm super friendly. 